The rest of you, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 34. As we stand and open the Word of God together this morning. Deuteronomy 34, this is our last message in the Not Home Yet series. I'm titling this one, Almost Home. <laughs> you ever been on a long trip? Whether you're headed there or headed back home? You hear that question from the kids again and again, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And usually it's not far now. Well, folks, um, I believe there's every indication that we're almost home. Look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34. Read, read about as we read about the home going of Moses. It says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which faces Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all the Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. The Lord then said to him, this is the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross into it. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab facing Beth Peor. No one to this day knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak, and his vitality had not left him. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning of Moses came to an end. Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land. For all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed, the sight of all Israel. Father, we thank You for the testimony of Moses. He was very real. He was used in a very powerful way. Lord, I thank You that You even record, even though You were the only one there, You've had it recorded in Your Word. Moses, homegoing, and his legacy. I pray that we would realize that we should live as if we're almost home, but not home yet. Lord, Your Spirit can show us in Your Word how to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The story's been told of a missionary couple that was returning after 30 years of mission work in Africa. They were returning to New York City, and it just so happened they were returning at the very same time that Teddy Roosevelt was returning from one of his big hunts, one of his big game hunts in Africa himself. Both returning from Africa, Roosevelt had been there for a little while to have some fun. This couple had been there 30 years to do mission work, to reach out to those who didn't have anything, most importantly, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And upon the revival, they noticed that, that the bands were assembled and began to play for President Roosevelt. People began to celebrate his, his coming home from this hunting trip. They began to cheer him on and applause began to fill the airport. But this couple had no one there to greet them. This older man, this missionary said, I don't understand it. 
30 years we gave the continent of Africa. 30 years we gave our lives to this mission agency. 30 years we gave our lives to broken, hurting people. Roosevelt comes home and there's a big celebration. We come home, nothing. And the wise wife, this missionary wife, looked at her husband and said, Honey, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. Folks, I believe we're almost home. We're not home yet. Perhaps we're almost home. Some of us closer than others. And I believe we should live like we're almost home. I believe that we should live like Jesus Christ died for our sins yesterday, was raised to life today, and that He's coming back tomorrow, even though He could come back today. We should live as if we're almost home. In chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, and I've so enjoyed this study, I hate for it to come to a close, not home yet. We have learned that there's been a parallel between uh, what was happening after the Exodus delivered from the bondage of Egypt before they entered into the Promised Land, that there are a lot of parallels between their journey and our journey from the moment we're delivered from bondage and slavery to sin and self and death and Hades and everything else. We're delivered from that bondage, but we're not in heaven yet. And so there's a wonderful parallel between uh, their journey home and our journey through this life to our eternal home. And in chapter 4, we see this description of Moses' death and kind of an accompanying eulogy that teaches us a little about how we should be living our lives. I'm just going to make a couple of points this morning, and I pray that it will give you something to take home with you and pray about and think about and begin to live out. The first thing I want us to learn from this passage about Moses, and really some things that we see in the New Testament that help us to understand how to apply it as Christians, is that we need to live, I'm sorry, we need to lead our lives with a vision of a better home. As we live this life, we need to lead others with a vision of a better home. Moses was a leader. Moses goes up from the plains of Moab here in chapter 34. He's at the top of Mount Pisgah. He's facing Jericho, and God begins to show him this vision of all the land in these first four verses that we read. It's kind of laid out, and geographically speaking, there would be no way for the physical human eye to see everything that Moses saw without the miracle of God saying, I'm going to give you a vision of what this promised land is going to look like. He was able to see this vision of a better home for the people that had been journeying in the wilderness for a long time, for 40 years. They were about to enter into this promised land, this land where milk and honey flowed. And he was able to see the borders, and he was able to see the land, and he was able to see the fruitfulness of the land that was going to be given to his descendants. I believe Moses had a supernatural experience of a vision there, not just what his eye could see, but, but what God could show him, a vision of what it all meant. I believe not only was it a miracle that was happening here, I believe Moses was one of those leaders who could see it before he saw it. I believe that it was a vision that he had from God to lead the people to the promised land that sometimes kept him going in life. But some of you are sitting here reading this passage and saying, but Moses died. He didn't get to enter into this promised land. And so why should we get so excited about him leading with a vision of a better home that he did not get to experience? Well, it's because of the insight that we have from the New Testament. We should always realize that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And we understand everything in Scripture in light of our relationship with Jesus Christ in this new covenant. And so Moses didn't enter, but Hebrews chapter 4 argues that there is a better rest 
than this rest that Israel was about to enter into temporarily. Once they got into this promised land, there were still going to be trials, there were still going to be battles, there were still going to be struggles. There would even be rebellions in this land. But Hebrews chapter 4 says that the eternal rest, the heaven that God has prepared for us, the heaven that Moses was about to step into, not across Jordan, but the eternal presence of his Lord, that was a much better home than he could ever have imagined. Hebrews 11 then comes back and mentions Moses in that great hall of faith, that he is the one who chose, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, he chose to suffer with the people of God because he was living not for the moment. He was leading courageously. He was leading with a vision of even a better home. Now that eternal promised land, not the land of Canaan, but heaven itself, the presence of God, is something that the Apostle Paul got a vision of in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we read that Paul was caught up into what he referred to as paradise or the third heaven. And a lot of us wonder, what in the world was that experience? What's interesting about that passage is that when Paul says, this is what happened to me as he's writing the church at Corinth, and later he would be explaining to them that, that we've got to have faith that we're living for something better than this life, because if this is all that we have, if this world is the best we'll ever experience, then we are of all men most pitiable. But he says, we're living for something better. We've got a better home that we're looking forward to. And, and, and so back in Hebrews, I'm mean, sorry, back in 1 Corinthians, or, or sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he's going to point out that he had ex, an experience, what he says was 14 years earlier. Now, some scholars have traced back the Apostle Paul's life and said, where was he at and what was he doing 14 years earlier when he had this experience? And that's where you read in the book of Acts about Paul ministering in Lystra, but his message wasn't so popular there. And remember what they did to him? They picked up stones and they stoned him to death, left him. The Bible just says left him for dead. I believe, along with many others, and I know we're reading between the lines, so this isn't Scripture. This is just um, how, how many have interpreted this passage. But I believe that it's possible that the Apostle Paul had what we might call a near-death or a temporary death experience, maybe even an out-of-body experience. We know that he had some kind of out-of-body experience where he was taken up to the third heaven. I think that possibly happened when they left him for dead just there outside of the city of Lystra. 14 years earlier. And he says that he saw and he heard things that were even unspeakable. He says, man, I cannot even put into words what I experienced when I was caught up into this third heaven. You're asking, well, what's the third heaven? I just want to make it to the first one. Well, the, the first heaven refers often to the, the sky, the clouds, those things that we see when we go outside and we look at the, in, in the daytime and we, we see the clouds and we see the blue sky and we say that's kind of the heavens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so uh, the second heaven would have been more like the stars, the universe, what we see when we go outside at night. I love these crisp, cold nights this time of year. And you can walk outside uh, at night or early in the morning, like I did this Friday morning. I just had to stop and pause on a cool, crisp morning and admire the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, the Bible says. And so that's the second heaven. But the third heaven was when we get outside the realm of this universe into the place that God created for 
us to experience eternity with Him through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, I believe Paul got a glimpse of that heaven of heavens, the place where we would spend eternity with God. He said, it's things that I can't even describe, I can't even put into words. John, the beloved apostle, got a more definitive vision at the end of his life. The book of Revelation, by the way, that is a singular word, Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. But in the book of Revelation, there are many visions of heaven and what it was like. I read from one a moment earlier where they're surrounding and and worshiping around the throne. But we discover a lot of other things about heaven in the New Testament that we need to understand that's what Moses had to look forward to. Did he miss out on the promised land that was Canaan? Yes, he did. And so did his generation. And Joshua and Caleb would, would have to lead them in. But did he miss out on eternity according to Hebrews chapter 11? No, he would step from this life right into the presence of God and enjoy the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Well, we need to learn to live with the end in mind. I've been enjoying our study with the men on Wednesday nights and Friday mornings. Robert Lewis reminds us we need to live with the end in mind. And he points to to a few things about a belief in a heaven like this. Things that we have to look forward to. For instance, in heaven, there will finally be resolution. What do you mean resolution? In heaven, things will be made right. Things will be as they were meant to be. Things will be as they should be. There will be resolution. In heaven, there will be no more sickness The book of Revelation says there will be no more pain. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be all things brought to a resolution. There will be no more injustice. And when we look at things that happen like what happened on 9-11 or what happened in Paris this past week, and when we look at the evils that have happened by leaders like Hitler uh, back during the, the Second World War and before, when we look out through human history and we say, why have all these evil injustices happened in heaven, there will be no such thing. We won't have to worry about that anymore. There will be no injustice. And those who brought about all of those terroristic acts, unless they come to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ, will not get to experience heaven, but they will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. In heaven there will be resolution. Things will all be made right. C.S. Lewis said, the first thing we'll say when we get to heaven, I know a lot of, a lot of us have what we want to say when we get to heaven. When, we, when I get to heaven, I'm just going to bow at the throne and worship forever and ever and ever. Or when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell somebody a thing or No, we're not going to tell anybody a thing or two when we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, I want to see this or go there. But C.S. Lewis said, when we get to heaven, our first words are going to be, of course, of course, see, things are going to be made right. And we're going to get it. Resolution. There will also be a heaven will be a place of renewal. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're told we're going to receive new bodies. We'll have new relationships, new ways of relating with one another. We will know as we were known, but we will there be the bride of Christ in this new relationship. We will be worshiping Jesus. The Bible says that there will not be marriage or giving in marriage in heaven but I will still know my wife as my sister in Christ. And we will have relationships that will never, ever, ever come to an end. Having a conversation this past week with one of my brothers in Christ here, we were talking about how hard it is sometimes 
as we approach the holidays and, and the people that we used to celebrate with just aren't here anymore. Many have gone on to be with the Lord. People that, that we miss and we say, I wish we could get the family together. Wish we could get everybody together like we used to be able to get together and our hearts are broken and we grieve that. And this time of year especially, we just miss that. Why can't it be like it used to be? Wish we could just get everybody together. In heaven, we will be able to do that and we will not have to worry about it coming to an end. That person you miss, that person you love, that person that your heart breaks for this time of year, they're going to be there if they know the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be there if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you won't have to worry about those moments coming to an end. Those renewed relationships. Revelation chapter 21 tells us that when the millennial reign of Christ comes to end on this earth, there's even going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth are done away with. I don't understand what all of that's going to look like, but I know this, listen, I believe we're called to be good stewards of the earth, but I'm not wringing my hands trying to figure out a way to make this planet last another billion years. God's not not going to need it another billion years. And so listen, I'm all for conservation. I'm all for being good stewards of the forests and the streams and the lakes and everything else, but I'm not panicking going, what are we going to do when the hole of the ozone gets so big? When the polar ice caps melt, which I think they're bigger now than they ever have been, but when the polar ice caps, I'm not worried about all that because God knows how long He needs it and He will preserve it for as long as He needs it. And then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's a place of renewal. It's also a place of reward. Heaven is a place of resolution. It's a place of renewal. It's a place of reward. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we're told that we'll all stand before the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. That's speaking there to believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're told that there, before Christ, all of our works will be revealed. Everything we do for Jesus, it's either going to be wood, hay, and stubble, and so it's going to just be burned up and not last for eternity, or it's going to be silver, gold, and precious stones, and it's going to last forever and ever and ever. And those things that we do with the right heart, with the right motives for God's glory that He called us to do, those are the things that will last forever and ever and ever. It's a place of reward. There are varying rewards in heaven, but it is a place of reward. It's also a place of responsibilities. Most of us get this picture of heaven sometimes from the uh, maybe a children's coloring book or a, a Looney Tunes cartoon of some kind, and, and we say, man, heaven's going to be floating around on a cloud playing a harp, or we're going to become angels. Now listen, this is going to mess some of your theology up, but when we get to heaven, we do not become angels. God created angels from the beginning as eternal beings. They always were angels. They always will be angels. One-third of them were part of the rebellion. They are fallen angels, condemned to separation from God forevermore, ultimately thrown with Satan into the lake of fire forever and ever. Two-thirds are God's ministering servants, both in heaven and on earth even today. Always were angels, always will be angels. When we die, we don't become an angel. Now, I know some of you... Uh, feel like you're probably married to an angel, right? Some of you feel like your children are angels. I don't see a lot of nods on that one, but but some of you feel like you have angels. Listen, I felt like when we were worshiping this morning that there were just angels in this place, and there probably were. Listen, when we die, we're not... The angels are our ministering servants in heaven. They will be serving God, serving the Lord Jesus Christ, serving alongside of us, serving us as we serve Him. We will have responsibilities. In Matthew chapter 19... When Jesus talks about how things are going to become a little bit rougher in the days to come, Peter's like, now wait a minute, we left everything to follow you. Remember Peter's words when the crowds were leaving Jesus, and he says, what, are you going to leave me too? Peter said, 
to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus, there's nobody else we would want to, there's no, nowhere else for us to go. We don't have anybody else but you. But then Peter gets real serious, and I love Peter because he's so real. And, and half the time it's open foot, in, uh, open mouth, insert foot, and the other half of the time he says something that is very profound. But he has a question here that I would have thought Jesus might have rebuked. He said, we've been following you, we've left everything for you, we wanted to, to know you, we wanted to walk with you, and, and look at all we sacrifice. And Jesus explains to Peter, you're going to be given great responsibility in the kingdom. When, when that eternal kingdom comes one day, the twelve apostles will be seated on the twelve thrones, and you're going to rule and you're going to reign. You're going to have great leadership responsibilities in heaven, Peter. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable and He explains at the end of that parable, those who were faithful in the few things they were given in this life will be made steward or rulers over many things in the eternal kingdom. So it might be that sweet lady who God gave the responsibility to simply pray for her church. And she prayed and she prayed and she prayed consistently for her church. And all of a sudden in the eternal kingdom, she's going to be the president of a country bigger than the United States. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know that God tells us there's going to be different responsibilities. We're not sitting around floating on clouds playing harps. We're serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords in a world made like it was supposed to be. A new heaven and a new earth. Most importantly here in this passage, we see that Moses is now with God. He had a vision for a temporary promised land, but God allowed him to step into his eternal promised home. And like Moses, the Apostle Paul even said when it came to the end of his life, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is Christ, and that's awesome, but the best is yet to come. To die is to be in the presence of God. And so even though we don't have it all figured out and there are pictures, more pictures actually of the new heaven and new earth than there are of where you would be right now if you stepped into eternity. Paul says, listen, we don't have it all figured out. To be, we don't even have our new and resurrected body at that moment. But our spirit is present with the Lord and absent from the body. And he said, all I know is I'm content. I am well pleased <laughs> to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. I'm with Jesus. I heard the story of a man who was a doctor and, and had his practice in a very rural town. And in, in, his, in his home, he had his little doctor's office and he had to keep everything clean and everything sterile in that particular room in the home. And he had one of the patients come over to see him. And this particular patient had a terminal illness. And the patient, as, he, as the patient the doctor met, the the doctor's dog was kind of scratching on the door wanting to get in, into the room. And of course, because everything was sterile, because it was a doctor's office, the dog was not allowed into this particular room. So the dog would just scratch at the door and they would hear the dog scratch. Meanwhile, they, they kind of forgot about the dog scratching and this patient is telling the doctor, listen, I, I know that I know the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that I'm saved. And I know this disease is supposed to take my life. He says, I'm not, not, not scared. I just wonder what it's going to be like. It's just the unexpected, doctor. He said, it's just the fear of the unexpected. What's next? The doctor said, you hear my little dog trying to get in? He said, I can't allow him to come in this room. He said, he doesn't even know what's in here. See, everything has to be maintained sterile. 
in here. And he said, the dog doesn't even know what I have in here. The dog doesn't even know what I do in here. He said, you know why that dog's trying to get in? He said, the dog loves me because I'm his master. I'm his master who has taken care of him all these years. And that dog doesn't know anything about this room. The dog just wants to be with me as master. And if all we know, that the moment we step into eternity, we were Jesus Christ, that's enough. We're present with our master at that very moment. We step right into his presence. Stephen, as he was being stoned to death, saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. I believe when we take a stand for Jesus like that, Jesus stands with us and for us. So it's sad that Stephen was stoned to death, but he stepped right into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ who was there to greet him. We need to lead with a vision of a better home. That's how Moses led. Secondly, and finally this morning, we need to leave, leave with a legacy of helping others make it home. Leave with a legacy of helping others make it home. We should all want the legacy that Miss Sherry shared a moment ago. Wanting to be a Lois. Wanting to help others to know the truth. Our families, our friends, our neighbors, the nations, everyone around us. We should want others to come to the same knowledge of God. Moses, it says in verse 5, was the servant of the Lord. He died, but that wasn't the end of his story. Why do we still know about him? God buried him in a tomb that nobody can find, verse 6 says. Why do we still hear about him? Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak. His vitality had not left him. Well, that's relatively great condition for age 120, I would think. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab. They wept for 30 days. The weeping in the morning of Moses finally came to him in. Why all of the mourning? Why all of the weeping? Because of the legacy that he would leave. He would leave with a legacy of helping others to make it home. He brought them to the brink of the promised land. And then Joshua, verse 9, filled with the Spirit because Moses had laid his hands on him, jo Joshua would become the leader now. Here's something interesting. The name Joshua in Hebrew, Yeshua, is the same word that is translated in the Greek, Jesus, which is our Greek word for Jesus. Both words, Joshua, Hebrew, Jesus, Jesus in the Greek, means God's salvation. I believe it's a picture of the fact that Moses could only bring them to the brink of the promised land, but Joshua would have to lead them in, and that became a picture that we can only lead people to Jesus Christ and point them to Jesus Christ, but only Jesus can take them into heaven. Only Jesus could lay down His life for the sins of the world and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can lead them to Jesus. We can point them to Jesus. And if we live a life of doing that, we will leave a legacy that is like verse 11 says of Moses, unparalleled, unparalleled, because nobody was getting after it like we were in pointing people to Jesus. God's salvation can't force anyone in, but we can point them to the one who can bring them in. Now Moses, again, he may have been 120 years old, but he was still vibrant. We say, well, it's sad. Nope. Remember, Hebrews 11 teaches us that Moses was already at a young age when he chose to step out of all the prosperity of growing up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. When he left that, he began to live his life with the end in mind. Rather than pursue the pleasure of sin, the Bible says, for a season. You're like, Pastor, are you telling me there's pleasure in sin? Absolutely there's pleasure in sin. 
but the Bible says it's for a season. There's pleasure in sin for a season. Moses chose not to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, but rather suffer with the children of God because what? He had a vision of a better home, and he would eventually leave a legacy of helping others to make it home. The Apostle Paul had the courage to change his legacy. Why? Because he had a vision of the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And then he had that other vision that we referred to a moment ago, that that out-of-body experience of the third heaven. And he began to also live with the end in mind, and it changed everything for him. And Paul would leave a legacy as one of the greatest missionaries who ever lived. For the Christian, as Paul came to the end of his life, for the Christian, Paul would teach us that living with the end helps us to do a few things. It helps us to focus better on what we need to focus on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24-27, through 27, Paul uses this athletic imagery when he says, in a race, all the runners run, but only one does, does what? Only one gets the prize. And he said, run in such a way as to get the prize. He says, in, in, in athletic competitions, all the athletes go into strict training. And then he says, I discipline my body. I buffet my body. He says, I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I would not be disqualified from the prize. What was Paul doing? He was saying, I want to live a disciplined life to the glory of God and leave a legacy so that I'm not disqualified from the prize after preaching it to others. He was living with a better focus. He says, I don't fight as one beating the air. I don't waste punches. Think about everything that we do in a week. Think about everything we do in a month. Think about all those things we want to do for God that we never get around to. Think about those things that distract us that we think are so important, but that in light of eternity, are they really that important? If we live with the end in mind, we will have a better focus. Not only will we focus better, but according to Paul, we'll fight better. In 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, as Paul was about to lose his life, he said to Timothy, listen, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. He had fought the good fight. He didn't fight for those things that didn't matter. He fought the good fight for the glory of God. He fought the fight to leave a legacy of helping others to make it home. We'll fight better. We will focus better. And we will finish better. I've finished the race, he says in 2 Timothy 4.7. Now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. But not only for me, Paul would go on to say, listen to... This, this crown, this reward that's coming uh, of living with the end in mind, it's not only for me, but it's for all of those who are longing for His appearing. All of those who said, listen, I'm living this life like I'm leaving, and I want to leave a legacy when I go. I want my life to have made a difference. I want my life to have made an impact. Now, stop and think about that for a moment, folks. If you know that you only have so much time, and the Bible tells us in James that life is like a vapor, it appears for a moment, and then it vanishes, it's gone. And if life is such a vapor, and we only have a short time, what do you want to do that's going to last, that's going to make a difference, that's going to leave a legacy that you helped others to make it home? Your family, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your neighbors, your community. Do you want to have a legacy of someone who helped them to make it home? Or you want to be the kind of person, well, you know what, I just kind of live for me. I wanted to enjoy life to the fullest. I wanted to be sure that I checked everything off my list to just have all the fun I could possibly have and then make it home. Going back to the passage I referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there will be some of us who are saved as by fire, by the skin of our teeth. 
we kind of just got by enough faith to get us into heaven, but not to make a difference in this world. I want to focus better. I want to fight better. I want to finish better. I want to do what counts for eternity. I want to hear the words of Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. See, we're not told that everybody who steps into heaven hears the well done of God when they do. But I want to hear the well done of God. See, last week, as we looked at the, the knowing Jesus Christ and, and how we can know Him, we looked at some fearful and frightening words. Depart from me, eternal darkness. I never knew you. I don't want to hear words like that. Nor do I want to hear, well, good enough. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Found a poem. This week we celebrated Veterans Day. Thank God for those who have served in our armed forces to give us even the freedom to gather in places like this. I remembered a statement one time. I can't remember where this originated, but I'm sure it was with a soldier. Simply this, there are no atheists in foxholes. <laughs> this poem was found on the body of a 19-year-old American soldier after he had died in Vietnam. We're not told who the author is. But here's what the poem said. It says, look God, I've never spoken to you. But now I want to say, how do you do? You see God, they told me you did not exist. And like a fool, I believed all this. Last night, from a foxhole, I saw your sky. I figured right then they had told me a lie. Had I taken the time to see the things you made, I would know they weren't calling a spade a spade. I wonder, God, if you would shake my hand. Somehow I feel you would understand. Strange, I had to come to this hellish place before I had time to see your face. Well, I guess there isn't much more to say, but I am sure glad, God, I met you today. I guess the zero hour will soon be here, but now I am not afraid now since I know you are near. The signal, well, God, I will have to go. I love you lots. This I want you to know. Looks like this will be a horrible fight. Who knows, I may come to your house tonight. Though I wasn't friendly with you before, I wonder, God, if you would wait at the door. Look, I am crying. Me, shedding tears. I wish I had known you these many years. Well, I will have to go now, God. Goodbye. Strange since I met you. I'm not afraid to die. No atheist in Foxhole. Whether the one who's body this poem was found on had come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ or not, I don't know, but if he did, he had some regrets that he didn't live his whole life for it. That he waited till the zero hour to come to faith. What about you? What about you? Are you living with the end in mind? Would you bow your heads with me?